Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S., or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. And if you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.substack.com. All content and episodes are for informational entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or non-accredited, Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, Join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is Annie Cadavy, Managing Director at Redpoint Ventures. Redpoint partners with exceptional entrepreneurs starting at the earliest stages of the climb. Some of her investments include Tend, Seish, and Silk and Sonder. We discussed her introduction to entrepreneurship and building things in her garage and patents, as well as tiptoeing the line throughout her career between operator and investor and the business model she's intrigued by and which are actually investable and make sense for venture capital, in her opinion. Without further ado, here's Annie. Annie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm so great. How are you? I'm doing terrific. I know we've had this um, on the books for for some time and really excited that, that we finally made it happen. Yes, likewise. I'm super excited to do it. So what was your initial early attraction to entrepreneurship going back, you know, way back in the day? Back in the day, back in the day, day. Um, my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, I increasingly think of him as kind of an inventor. Um, he was not, we didn't grow up in Silicon Valley. It was not the type of technology entrepreneurship that I kind of live and breathe day to day um, now. But I'm the oldest of four kids, and uh, I watched my dad invent a lot of cool things. Um, Some of them were big, some of them were small, but it was like in the garage building cool stuff. And this kind of idea, um, and in some ways I'd say like respect and appreciation, but it was even greater than that. It was like admiration at the deepest kind of childhood level of creating something new out of an idea that came out of your head was when I really, really think it through, like that's where the genesis was for me. Um, And it was always something I aspired to do. If it was something that you always inspired to do, maybe what was like your first whack at um, at entrepreneurship? Like, what was that like? There were some like little like kid things, you know. They were they were like pre college. Um, in high school, I, I filed my first patent for. Uh, I played a lot of soccer growing up, um, and it was for um, for people who have maybe played soccer. You know, you have your shin guard that goes inside of the long sock and it comes up to your knee as you get kind of you play more and more you want smaller and smaller shin guards because they kind of bother you. And then you would end up like taping them on. And so we, 
I made these soccer socks that you had like a Velcro pouch inside so that you didn't have to deal with like taping them on and off. And um, we filed a provisional patent for that. Funnily enough, Nike, within about five years, put like put out a very similar kids product that was like a, a shin guard inside of a sock. And I realized that my provisional patent was not nearly uh, done well enough <laughs> to go and like file any sort of claims against it. But it was one of those moments where I was like, Oh man, I was like so close to something incredible, but it was, um, it was a really cool, cool thing to, you know, come from a personal experience, go and like figure out how to get this thing made, um, you know, get it out to, you know, some friends who were using it, use it myself. Um, so it never became a big business by any means, but that was my first time kind of going down the path. That's super cool. That's super cool. How, what was also the, when you were the first time, maybe you thought about technology as well, um, and kind of what, what kind of sparked that interest? I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, um, and I went. I moved to California to go to college at Stanford, and I had. I don't think I'd ever said the words out loud. Venture capital. I certainly didn't know really what it was. And entrepreneurship to me was something like very creative and big and and kind of undefined. It could be in any any number of industries, any type of entrepreneurship. It was really like the idea of creating something new, and um, so technology is you know is one avenue. Now I view it as a primary avenue with which to to build these types of, of businesses. But it wasn't until I was an undergrad at Stanford where you can almost not help but be exposed to that. It's just everywhere, right? And you're sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley down the street from Sand Hill Road. Your speakers are many times entrepreneurs or venture capitalists themselves. Like it really kind of whacked me over the, the side of the head of like, oh my gosh, this is this amazing thing that I, I just genuinely didn't really know existed. Um, so that was the first time I really, I think, understood how to build that type of business, um, what types of people, what types of qualities, what types of um, experiences and skill sets it was required to build something like that. Um, the first time I ever took it, I guess I, I had some internships, I worked at some startups, but the first time I ever took a, um, a hack at it myself was uh, and the tail end of my time at business school, um, we a few of us tried to start this company, or rather, we did start this company called Better Sitter. That was a, a marketplace that connected childcare providers with um, you know parents that were looking for childcare. Um, I had been a, a babysitter myself for literally ten thousand hours, and so. Um, at the time, there was like a quote up there about, you know, go and solve a problem that you've spent 10,000 hours and like deeply, deeply understand. And that happened to be a problem that I deeply, deeply understood. Um, so we went down the path of building out kind of a V1 product uh, to go solve that problem. What were some of your learnings um, about what during your time at, at Better Sitter and actually, you know, um, it was no longer, you know, just kind of part time or just, you know, in high school and, and, and maybe middle school kind of um, thinking about just different kind of products to launch. But actually, you, you're, you're actually dedicated, you're actually dedicated this as a as a full time business. Yeah, I think I can answer that question through two lenses. One is kind of as a human, um, how did it feel to feel like I was fully all in doing this? And then the second would be, about the business or model or the conclusions we came to or the things we learned maybe a bit more tactically related to that business in particular on, on the first, um, it was terrifying (laughs) mostly is how I would describe it. Um, it, because I, I, you know, and I think a lot of founders feel that way the first time around, um, and, and maybe, you know, second, third, fourth time around too, though, as with anything, it's a muscle, I think that people build, um, but it feels you're very exposed. Um, it feels very vulnerable. You very quickly start to learn the things that you actually know how to do or the things that you maybe thought you knew how to do or the things that you actually didn't even realize you didn't know how to do that you would need to figure out how to do. Um, and that is daunting because you also have, you know, kind of by definition, tabula rasa, like the world is your oyster to go build this thing and you and your team are responsible to figure out what are we going to do first, second, third? How are we going to do things first, second, and third if we ourselves are not capable? For example, like I couldn't code up our first website. We had to figure out a way to do that. Um, I was not an, like an engineer by background. Um, so there's there's that journey, which is, I think, for me and for a lot of founders I've come to get to know over time, quite personal. Um, and, and it's like very human. <laughs> Um, because it feels like you're really exposed. Um, 
and you're, you're taking a big risk that is like very intricately tied to uh, your, your own kind of purpose and identity. Um, so there's that journey uh, that I think is maybe not unique to me. Um, and then the journey that was related to this, you know, specific company, we were trying to build a marketplace that was localized, both supply and demand, right? If you're thinking about what's the nature of like, you're, you're finding a family that needs a human being to come into their home and, and take care of what it probably is their most valued asset, their children. Um, you know, what are the types of trusts that go into that transaction? How can you build um, both new supply and demand geo by geo? That's hard. That's expensive. But but most importantly, what we realized was that when you do your job really well, people churn off your platform. So how do you get them to stay? Um, so we went through that journey. Uh, and then ultimately, just uh, I thought it was going to be too big of a hill to climb. Like I felt like I looked seven years in the future or 10 years in the future and was like, oh, this is fundamentally a very challenging. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd say flawed because there are a couple of companies out there care.com and urbans that are being too that you know have built models around it the problem is 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 not flawed at all it's very clear it's very pervasive i'm now a parent and i feel it even more acutely than i did before um but yeah right i'm like i would do anything to find a child care provider and if i find one that's good i will not share it with anybody like you know um anyway we went on that journey and realized how challenging it was going to be and so we decided to you know shut it down and move on it was actually not maybe having the um in terms of what kind of the reason why you shut it down or the reasons that why what why you found it found it you know we were thinking 5 10 15 years down the line um about this business it wasn't so much actually building like the robust kind of pool on either side of the marketplace it was more so about um okay people were fine like we were actually making great matches but actually churn people were churning off super after you kind of make those matches is that is that roughly right yeah and we learned there's there's two types of child care there's predictable child care right you need somebody monday through friday you need somebody every tuesday night um you need somebody every saturday night you know um and and you also have Childcare providers, of which I was one, that are looking for that, right? They're looking for uh, these are the hours I work every week. I can predict my schedule. I can build around it to do whatever other things I'm doing. That's the bulk in terms of hours. That's not the bulk in terms of need. Need is actually, oh my gosh, this, you know, I just had somebody cancel or something just came up. I need somebody. It's, it's acute, right? It's not the kind of chronic plan thing. It's the acute, I need somebody to help me right now because. I've got two little kids under the age of five and I really need to go somewhere else. And my partner is out of town or something, you know? Um, and so we, we tried both of those and debated kind of which one of those are you trying to go to and, and the willingness to pay and how people think about paying. Do you pay on a monthly basis, on an annual basis? Do you, or do you pay for kind of a one-off match or transaction? Um, it is pretty different. Um, and so we we kind of navigated our way through that a little bit, uh, and we never touched bottom on it. Um, this company called Urban Sitter that was started right around the same time. This was now over ten years ago. Um, what I had heard about it from uh, another investor actually at the time, and uh, they were you know three or four people also. They were launching a product like it was kind of uncanny within six months. Part of this was that the Facebook graph had just become available, so you could actually like start a network very quickly and see which parents were also using which childcare providers. And that was a really important trust proxy for who was going to book whom. Um, so we ended up like packaging up what we had learned mostly what we had built was not that valuable. And, um, and I went to San Francisco. I remember I drove and, and sat down with Lynn and said, I desperately want this business to exist. Um, babysitting was what had funded, um, kind of a big part of my college um, experience uh, and high school before that. And, and I was thinking about it at that time in my life from the, you know, care caretaker um, side of things. Now as a parent, I realized like I doubly would like for this business to exist. Um, and, uh, but it was important to me. It was important to me on some really fundamental levels. Uh, and we kind of gave them everything. We talked about like, you know, do I join the company um, early on and help them build it? But at that point I'd kind of, become clear enough on my conclusions about how I thought it was going to scale and my, my challenges with it, uh, that I 
I wasn't ready to continue to commit kind of more than a hundred percent of my time to it. Got it. Got it. Um, so after, after better sitter, what were you then thinking about career wise? Cause I know that's, that's how you, I guess, got into venture capital, right? After better sitter. But like, was that, was that always on the back of your mind VC or like what, what was kind of your, your thought process? VC, as mentioned, I had never thought about it or heard of it until college I've met people now since that are like, oh, when I was seven years old, I wrote my famous person report on a venture capitalist and I always wanted to be a venture capitalist. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Like, you know, um, but I didn't grow up in that environment. Uh, And uh, so I had had one, I guess, internship of sorts at a venture capital um, firm called SB Angel, which was a pretty prominent seed fund in the around like 2010. Um, a guy named Ron Conway, who is a kind of prolific angel investor, had this seed fund. Um, it no longer exists in the same way. But uh, I had been wanting to start a company, wanting to start a company. And I had a couple of friends who who worked there full-time, a couple of the partners. And so I said to them, hey, can I help you look at your deal flow? And I'll try and help sort it for you. And for me, the value was, I have no idea how to build a pitch deck, but one day I'm going to need to. Can I learn you know, through volume of seeing a couple hundred of these things? Um, that had been my only real exposure to VC before. Uh, and so I, when, but when we decided that better sitter was not going to be the thing that we'd once hoped it would be, uh, I had had an offer to return to Bain where I had done management consulting before that I decided I still was, um, going to turn down because I kind of like tasted this entrepreneurial journey and, and it was just too exciting to not want to do, but I had, financially, a lot of financial aid um, that I needed to figure out. Starting a company with that uh, also on your back is, for me, kind of past my own personal risk threshold. Um, and so I, I had a short list of companies I thought I might go join. Uh, and they were, you know, consumer, early stage, series A mostly. Um, and I had this short list and I, I went to a couple of people who I had met along the way um, in the, who were full-time VCs, like on Sandhill Road at big firms that you know you've heard of that I now now know who they are. And I went to them and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about joining one of these companies. You know, you're a VC. What do you think? What am I missing?" Um, and one of them, uh, who I'd gotten to know through this class at the GSB, asked me what at the time was a really profound question, but was kind of funny. Now he said, "Well, this, this is a great list of, of companies." Um, what might you do there? And I was like, never crossed my mind. I have no idea. I just thought the company is so amazing. Like clearly this company is going to be great. You can slice, put me in anywhere, coach. Like I just, I didn't really, I had honest to God, not ever thought about that once before. And he was like, well, it seems to me like maybe you'd like being on the VC side. Have you ever thought about that? And I like, I mean, I remember this conversation clear as day. We're sitting at this cafe in downtown Palo Alto and I looked at him like, you must be out of your mind. I could never be a VC. I'm like a young woman with no oper- like real operating experience. I've never run a big company for 10 years or anything like that. At the time, um, Ellen Powell was like uh, that whole story of how she was coming out of Kleiner and there was some like really bad very public conversations going on about kind of diversity in venture, specifically women in venture. And um, this firm and every other firm I talked to were exclusively men uh, who were older than I was. And I I just kind of looked at it and didn't really think twice and was like, of course, that's not a place for me. Um, but then, you know, had some more conversations and ultimately ended up um, going to a venture firm, uh, which... I then spent the next four and a half years kind of working through my own imposter syndrome of being there. What were, I guess, your initial, um, what like kind of area were initially hired for um, as CRV in terms of where you actually spent your time? CRV is a great firm. They've been around. They're one of the oldest venture firms. I think they've been around at this point well over 50 years, which is pretty incredible for a venture firm to have kind of managed through um, that many iterations of what it means to be a venture capitalist. Um so I was hired on there to do a uh, quote unquote early stage consumer. Um, and, and like that was the, that was the one line job description. Um, what, what was consumer was kind of to be defined. Uh, and I was given, you know, a, I think a very long leash to go meet a whole bunch of companies and a whole bunch of sectors with many different business models and um, kind of learn, learn as I go. 
That's awesome. And I know that you've had, you know, a few, a few hits there with, um, class pass and Patreon, which is um, incredible. So you're, you're in VC, you, you were, you're, you're working at CRV for a few years, you know, one of the, one of the most famous, you know, funds in venture capital. Why did you decide to leave? I decided to leave for a couple of reasons, two reasons. There were two reasons. So I was there for four and a half years. Um, reason number one was that I, my, I had observed um, through some of the people at CRV, which were a mix of operators and full-time investors, or rather former operators, full-time or former full-time investors, but also like seeing the boards at, at other companies. And so investors from kind of other firms that I'd gotten to know over time. I had observed that I thought the people who had had some operational experience, they they spoke to founders on, on a kind of a, a different level. Like they could drop into this operating hat level and kind of meet the founder where they were in a in a different way than the folks that I saw who had only been investors or pretty much exclusively only been investors. Not to say you have to do that. Like if we were to look at the you know, just define as you will, best investors out there, you're going to see a full range of kind of what their backgrounds were. So this didn't seem to me as like a necessity, but it was something I wanted to do and something that I thought um, would make me a better investor. Uh, and so that was number one. Like when I, when I came to CRV and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to leave um, two things you, you need to know. One, <laughs> I'm leaving without knowing what I'm going to do next. I'm not going to another venture firm. That is not my intention. Number two, I'm going to join a company. Uh, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. I've got some ideas. Um, and and I think that it's going to make me better. My, my working hypothesis is that I will come back to venture in the future. But I really think that now is a, a really great opportunity for me um, to go and try on a totally different hat. Uh, and and learn, you know, climb a different learning curve uh, that, you know, I don't know where I'm going to land. I think it's going to bring me back to venture, but it very well might mean like, I might find that I love being an operator at a X size company and, and who knows, either way, I should go sort that out too. So that was the primary reason to go. Um, and I think that the the second reason was I had learned a lot along the way. Um, and I think in venture, you know, as you as you learn and get better, and and more importantly, like hopefully get lucky with some of your early investments, you get to kind of evaluate what what's important to you and putting a venture firm together, um, and and what that looks like. And I I wanted to go kind of explore what that looked like, um, either maybe starting my own, joining some friends who had been talking about it, understand kind of what's under the hood of other venture firms because I'd only been at one before, uh, and so those were the the reasons I went. I mean, what I find fascinating is, you know, you've produced a few, you invested in a few hits while you're a CRV um, with, you know, ClassPass and Patreon. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, and it's, it's interesting how I, I feel like if it was anyone else that kind of had that track record, then they would just, you know, maybe stay in, in, in VC and I don't know, raise their fund to be on that track record or, you know, what have you, but, uh, but they would kind of not think about, well, there's still this part of VC that I want to kind of learn and kind of and kind of explore, which is understanding like the operation side of, of the business. Um, and so, I mean, just kudos to you about just not like kind of staying put and instead wanting to kind of explore and not, you know, being, you know, never being, you know, kind of too comfortable, even though with the amount of success you had, it seems like you really had the, the, the option to kind of uh, stay put and, and and be comfortable. Yeah. Well, th- I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny at the time, I, there were some good ones. There were class pass and Patreon DoorDash. There were a couple others that we thought that we thought would be good, but ended up not being great, which is how early stage venture goes in terms of returns. Totally. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, maybe it comes all the way back to, it's a, not the best personality trait of mine, but I am actually very uncomfortable being comfortable. Um, and so it was not a hard decision for me uh, to go and and kind of try this like new risky thing uh, that I wanted to do it in kind of a risk adjusted way. Again, just how I'd kind of gone to venture because I had all of this financial aid I needed to kind of work out. And I, I was thinking about what opportunity would I go to that was kind of risk adjusted. There's a reason I didn't go to a four person startup um, next. 
What were some of your learnings while at CRV since it seems like many of your winners were in, you know, consumer, uh, consumer marketplace type businesses. And then you ended up going to work at a consumer marketplace type business as well. Uh, but like, what were some of like your learnings, um, from, from that experience from the investment side? Yeah. Um, I didn't know the first thing about venture, you know, like I, I owe a lot to the team at CRV that took a bet on me, which I'm not quite sure why they should, why they would have done that. Um, but, uh, but they did. And then they, you know, over, over years, I think I earned their trust. Um, and, and they earned mine, uh, to work really well together. Um, so I think that that was, that's actually one learning that I think about a lot now, um, being in a, a slightly different position at Redpoint, which is the trust of your team and how you collaborate together is, is really important in, in influencing kind of how you make decisions. Uh, so that's, that's one. Um, I think more related to what types of investments are interesting, you know, now we look at the data and, and say, okay, if we look within with inside consumer, there are a lot of different types of consumer businesses. At the time, this was like 2012, 13, 14, there were a lot of CPG businesses being started. Um, some of them were subscription, like Dollar Shave Club, which is obviously a really big outcome. Most of them were just kind of brand new e-commerce brands. We didn't invest in any of those. Uh, and I think that that was the right call in retrospect, because it was hard to pencil like, how does this become a multi-billion dollar company? I always say, like, I don't want to invest in any uh, consumer business that has a, a TAM, like a, a total addressable market of less than about $40 billion, because I want to believe that that company can do, can be valued at a billion dollars with less than 1% market penetration. And my, my back of the envelope consulting math, like, that's how I get there on kind of market TAM. And so the categories that we invested in were, were big categories. It was like, if this goes well in food delivery, there's a lot of people that will want delivered food. If this goes well in boutique exercise, um, you know, or in exercise generally fitness, like there are a lot of people that will do that. If this goes well in, you know, enabling creators to make money on a subscription basis, like there's a lot of creators out there, like many, many millions of them. Um, and when you looked at like, well, if, if this goes well, then you sell, you know, a lot of like bed sheets to somebody or a lot of candles to somebody or a lot of diapers to somebody like the markets were just a little, they were a little small. And also you had transactional revenue, um, as opposed to any kind of lock-in on a, on a platform. So, um, we ended up, you know, we ended up investing in mostly marketplace companies. Again, some of them that we just talked about ended up faring quite well. Several of them didn't. But marketplaces kind of became a thing that I got really excited about. And, and then uh, from there, I, I, I also learned that the problems that every consumer business have, has are mostly supply chain problems, as it turns out. And so I ended up looking at the kind of like next level of behinds, like you have the brand here, but then it was like, well, what are the tools or products or platforms that power those brands. If you believe that Shopify is going to grow, if you believe that like um, Instagram is going to grow, if you believe that more and more people are going to want to be building their own businesses, like what's that level of things? And I got really excited by some of these like logistics and supply chain businesses. Um, Flexport was at the Series A. Convoy was at the Series A. Um, I was spending time with those businesses, and then. Um, Uber Freight, which is what I ended up joining, was kind of just being put together inside of Uber for the first time. Um, and and that was the, the business that I ended up joining. I appreciate you walking through why, as a um, type of business, why a marketplace business was very attractive when it comes to venture returns, as opposed to physical products, consumer brands, um, maybe kind of pure play uh, consumer brands as well. As well. Um, on the TAM part, it's funny because we've had investors that are very kind of TAM focused and um, very kind of market, kind of maybe that like consulting um, background, I want to say, uh, focus. We have also other investors that like don't even want to talk about TAM because like usually that the TAMs that they invest in are usually pretty small. And the idea is that they grow to this, become this large. Yeah, they go, woo, and they grow this, these large numbers and it's, you know, the open sea and, and what happened. Um, I mean, the the blue ocean. Um, how do you think about this when, when it comes to TAM and actually measure TAM 
when because i mean that's the idea right that like that like you hope that the market's actually small but the market is growing at a at, at a really fast kegger so like how how do you kind of how do you think about this question in terms of tam yeah it's a great question and whoever else was talking with you about that i generally agree with them um i think about it tam there's a defined tam right so class pass you would comp that probably to like personal training or you would comp that to like gym memberships. Neither of those would get you to be big enough to invest in a company like ClassPass. Um, so you, so I actually would rebuild my own version of TAM and say demographically, how many humans do I think there are that actually want to do this? Or I can say like yoga studios should be included in this, like Soul Cycle should be included in this, um, half marathon should be included in this, like you know, there's kind of like a long tail and you have like, you know, Pilates and now you have rowing and Barry's bootcamp and like all these types of things. Right. But there was kind of like all the things there's no like Tam today that shows all of those things together. So you kind of, you know, I think this is a fun part. Like you kind of get to put it together and say like, okay, if this is my Tam, which is not something I pulled from like a market re- research report or something, is this big enough? And, um, and that's when I say Tam, that's what I mean. Same thing with like, you know, if you were to look at Uber series A and, and comp it to the black car market, you would like would have missed that one pretty big time. If you looked at Airbnb and were to comp it to, um, you know, the hostel market, for example, um, you would have missed that one pretty big time too. And so those are, you know, silly, but very real examples. Even DoorDash, if you were to comp it to Grubhub at the time, you would have missed on how big it could be. Or like the market for that we were looking at was how many restaurants today offer delivery. Turns out it's just pizzas. Like, and the reason that they can do it is that pizzas actually will stay warm in, in, in like the sleeve in your car for long enough that they can afford to have a full-time delivery person. Um, but every restaurant was constrained by um, front of house seating, not back of house kitchen capacity. So if you walked up and down and asked five restaurants, they would all tell you, yeah, I'd love to deliver, but like, I don't think I'm going to have the volume to merit, like, you know, hiring my full-time delivery person. You're like, oh, well, would you want to share a delivery person? They're like, yeah, of course. Um, you know, and now we've seen how that kind of evolved. Um, so for me, Tam, yeah, you should be able to dream the dream a little bit on it. Um, but it it is what kind of separates uh, the companies that I think can be really good kind of traditional venture returns from those that are great businesses and frankly really fun to build. But for you know funds that are in this size, you know, multi hundred million dollar funds that are looking for you know multi billion dollar hits, uh, you have to believe that the kind of market is moving to a place where it could be really so so big that you could have a foundational consumer company on the back of it. Yeah, I mean that that is, I think, a really interesting way to uh, to look at it in terms of where the market is right now and what are maybe some of the levers that need to happen in order for the market to actually grow. Um, and like, I I, I like your class pass one too because it's like an aggregation of a lot of different types of kind of workout activities. Um, I'd imagine like on the Patreon side, it's like okay how many kind of creators or, or people that are, you know, making content, I feel like that's growing. And so, yeah, anyway, if you have anything to add there. Yeah. I remember we looked at the, the number of YouTube content creators that had over a million subscribers. And that's how we defined the TAM. I don't remember what that number was, but it was like, this number is much bigger and it's growing very quickly. Um, and these people are making $67 a month based on ads revenue. Like it seems like there's probably some other way to better align. What led you to Uber? Um, and why, and I know you want an operational experience. Why did you, how did that, how did that come about? Why, why was Uber the right company? Uber wasn't the right company. <laughs> um, but I, uh, so I, I ended up taking when it was all said and done five months off between leaving CRV and joining Uber, which was about five more months than I thought I was going to take four more months than I thought I was going to take. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I tend to approach a, any sort of big decision, a, a, a job or career decision being, being one of those, uh, i make my best decisions when I have like real self clarity in my own head of what I'm looking for. And so I had a ranked order list of priorities of, of things that were important to me in a job. And, um, 
that made it really easy for me to stay kind of honest with myself about what I was prioritizing and what I was not prioritizing. The biggest one on that list that I believe either has to be your number one or your number five, five of five in my case, is is compensation um, or potential upside. At the time I joined Uber, uh, tail end of 2016, beginning of 2017, it was already a big company. I mean, it was still private, but it was like, I could not have called it a startup if I tried, right? It was many thousands of people. Um, and and so that had that didn't hit my criteria of, of kind of um, really early product that's going to be, that could grow at like a, um, you know, non-linear, above linear rate. And that it was a company that I could join at and be part of the executive leadership team. Neither of those things were going to be true if I was joining Uber at, I don't know how many thousands of people, 4,000 people maybe were there. Um, but interestingly, there was this little group called Uber Freight that we I'd gotten to know a couple of the people kind of while I was at CRV. They were starting a different company at the time. Um, and I had spent, as I mentioned, a bunch of time with like companies like Flexport and Convoy and Samsara. And um, and had like a real perspective. I'm like, I think this B2B marketplace could be really big. Like if you can do it for consumers getting rides, why can't you do it for truck drivers moving loads? Um, that market is way bigger <laughs> than the consumer market. Um, and, uh, you know, from a values alignment perspective, the life of a truck driver, which I had some family members who were, is really tough. It is really, really, really tough. Uh, and I, I kind of love the idea of, wow, could you use technology in a marketplace model to improve their lives 1%, 5%, 10%, 50%? And what would kind of the downstream impacts of that be? And so for me, Uber was um, Uber was the wrong company, but Uber Freight was the right company. And it just happened to be getting built as a startup kind of inside this larger business. I ended up learning a tremendous amount getting to be part of kind of Uber overall during that time and, and have kind of front row seat to um, the rides business, to the eats business, to a few other things that were being kind of trialed at the time, but then also got this startup experience working in a tiny little office, pre-product, pre-revenue, um, and, and building the team from the ground up. A number of things that are interesting is on the surface, as you say, it looks like you're working for a very long, large company, which is very true, but your actual role was, you know, making this, um, um, was in this division that was actually very, very, very startup-like um, since you're building an entirely new product, I mean, marketplace. And also what's interesting is your past investing and also even as a founder was all kind of in consumer. And this was a, like, a, like, like a stretch to actually build a market, like, like more like the B2B side um, and maybe with attraction on the B2B um, on the B side, maybe some exposure there as well. Even though I know you also work with Flex and I mean, I mean, uh, Flexport and, and maybe other companies on that side. I know you were also during at Uber during the big transition uh, from Travis Adara. Like, what was that also like um, in from your perspective? That's a great question. Um, I was at Uber on the day that that happened. That must have been like middle of 2017, probably. Um, and it was a it was just a crazy learning experience for me um, because I was you know. It, it was, there was an all hands that happened. Um, and so, you know, again, I don't know how many people were at Uber at the time I should know, but I want to say it was like about 4,000. There are thousands of people at the company. And so there are some people who are in person, but there's offices around the world. Everyone's dialed in. I was sitting in a conference room with, I don't know, 20 or 30 other Uber Freight people. And we were watching this kind of live stream, um, all hands where, uh, Travis got up there as, as he normally did during all hands. And, and I don't know, talked through any number of things, but the part all I remember was then he said, you know, I'm stepping down as CEO. And I, he said a bunch of really, I thought very kind of kind and mature things about Dara. He said, this is a great person. I'm fully supportive of him being here. Um, and then he introduced Dara and then Dara came up and, and Travis literally took a step back off stage. Um, and Dara then kind of addressed the whole company all at once um, and so watching that from my seat was, was very interesting both to watch how it was done. And, and by the way, if, if you remember, like in the background, there was all this news coming out, right. About like the shitstorm that was going on, excuse my language with like Travis and his board and how benchmark was like 
doing the worst thing any venture capitalist could do by like forcing this founder to leave his company. And uh, that, you know, I don't know, there was just like all this noise about it. And then we watched this very, you know, cordial, well-orchestrated, seemingly honest kind of transition right in front of us. And so I remember then like when the screen went off, the meeting's done sitting in that room was actually the more like where more learning took place for me, which is because in that mix of people, you had some people like me who were very new to the company. And so I had no reason not to like Travis, but I didn't have a personal deep seated allegiance to him in a way that early Uber employees, many Uber early, many early Uber employees did and potentially still do. And so the, the, the variation in response. I mean, people were crying. People were very upset. Um, and and other people were kind of like, hmm, cool, whatever, <laughs> was also really interesting for me to see. And I think reflective of, of the journey that companies go on. Like early on, you know, bringing it back full circle to the earlier conversation, like I've been a founder, I've been an early employee at a startup too. Um, it is personal. It is wildly personal. Like you go through the ringer with these people and you stay up all night and you like pull your hair out together and they, you know, they help you or they make you wildly successful. Or in Travis's case, they also make you like wildly financially successful, like for a bunch of reasons, personally, um, there's like a really tight knit bond that's built there. And I think it's part of what makes working in an early stage company just one of the best experiences of all time. It is the hardest, but also the best. And then as a company grows, just by definition, like it gets a bit less personal, right? And people who are, um, you know, there for different reasons end up joining and, and you get further and further from that kind of really, you know, human core. And then the job of leadership is to like, you know, build, build a culture that can be extensible as a company grows, which is, its own total different challenge that, um, you know, I think frankly, Dara, uh, at least while I was there was starting to do a pretty good job of. Did you see, and maybe because, you know, you were in fright, which was maybe different from, you know, maybe Uber core. Um, did you, did you, did you notice on the transition, uh, when it did transition from, from Travis and Dara that there was, um, maybe a change, um, in, uh, I mean, however, describe change um, a, as you'd like, but was there was there maybe a change in culture? Was there a change in um, in kind of different parts that that, that you saw, um, even in strategy um, that that you saw, or was freight kind of siloed where it didn't really, and it, you were kind of still a startup anyway that it, that that there really wasn't you know a lot of a, a lot of change from from that end. Well, our question was like, is freight still important? Like freight <laughs> yes. was important to Travis. Yeah. <laughs> so is freight important to Dara? Is he going to be like, what is right. going on with these like truck drivers? We're not a truck driver company. You should go to something else. Um, so yes, it was highly relevant <laughs> what was going on. And I um, I remember going to sit down with with Dara for the first time and bringing our our plan for freight, right? Which is, which is a very expensive business to build. Um, and saying like, you know, we've got three versions of our plan. This is the one we, we think we should go down. And, and he asked us great questions, very pointedly in the first meeting. And we walked out. Um, I think I personally felt like really impressed that he he really understood the nuances of the business and he understood how big it could become. And he made it very clear that it was going to continue to be a priority for him and therefore for Uber for the you know foreseeable future. Um, so, so yeah, it was definitely, definitely important uh, to us, you know, as, as individuals and, and other things that changed. Um, yeah, culturally, some things changed very quickly. And Uber at the time also was not being written about very positively for its culture. Um, and, and so how kind of ratings and reviews and performance compensation was done um, was changed tactically. Uh, and I think that that trickled down then into kind of how some of the culture started to evolve. You you, you then leave Uber. What led you to <laughs> Redpoint and kind of going back into VC um, and that you felt that you had enough operational experience? I had like, it was really funny. I don't know how it happened, but I had a tremendous amount of inbound from firms saying like, hey, you want to catch up about coming back into venture? And, and so the 
um, the timing was very real. Like five years ago, it had been, we only want to hire somebody who's been at Twitter or Facebook. We have to have like a, a, a person who's been an operator from one of these two consumer social companies. And if you look, there was like a whole wave of people that got hired from those companies into venture. Um, some of them are still there. Some of them have chosen to do other things. Um, but at that moment in time, that was the spec. And, and I really do believe that like, I just happened to be the spec. Um, and so those were the two reasons I ended up leaving um, Uber to join Redpoint sooner than I expected. Um, and I, can, with, I will talk for an endless amount of time about how I made that decision and, and how happy I am with the, with the Redpoint team and, and all of that. But yeah, I'd love to know what what stood out from Redpoint um, uh, amongst maybe the rest that you were considering. So I, there were a few things I knew I wanted uh, in in joint coming back to venture. It's like any job. Once you've done it once, you're going to ask slightly different, hopefully better questions to come back into that, right? Like you've done sales at one company. You're like, okay, didn't ask these questions. Let me ask these questions next time, right? Like you've been a PM at this company. You're going to ask different questions about being a PM at another company. Um, and and same thing. You've been a VC at one firm. You're going to ask different questions going back into, into VC because you, you, you understand the model a little bit differently. Um, and so I felt like my questions were better. And I also had a whole bunch of friends who I'd gotten to know over many, many years in venture who were really valuable sounding boards for me and also had really valuable information for me of like what's going on in these places, really, really going on in these places. Um, and uh, so what was important to me objectively, I wanted a place that did both consumer and enterprise early stage investing that had access to growth um, because I think there's a really valuable feedback loop between early and growth investing. Um in terms of kind of learning and information sharing. Uh, and then uh, I wanted one that was going to be based in San Francisco because at that point it was pretty clear for my life that I was going to be wanting to stay in the Bay Area. And um, and then I wanted a, uh, I didn't want to start my own firm, which we can talk about in a moment because that seems like all the rage these days. Um, but uh, I wanted to I wanted to join a platform that was that was in the top quartile moving in the right direction because some firms are in the top quartile, but they're moving in the wrong direction because they haven't managed a generational transition because their portfolio, recent portfolio is not very good because the brand is really stale. Like, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, and so I made a list of like every firm <laughs> crossed out, you know, over 60% of them took a picture of that list, sent it to three friends and venture and said, is this the world of opportunities? I think this is the world of opportunities. And then I went and talked to those, those firms and Redpoint was on there, not because it was top of my list, but because it was like a, Hmm, I don't know as much as I'd like to know about this place. I've had some friends who have worked there. Um, they all have good, seem to have good things to say about it. I know a few entrepreneurs who have been backed by Redpoint. They all have good things to say about it, but like I myself don't know the humans all of them super well. Um, and I wanted to go sort that out. So I, you know, at the end of the day, I ended up joining Redpoint because it had all the things I was, I was looking and, and hoping for. Um, but most importantly, it was the, the people. It's like the culture of the place. It's very team oriented. If venture firms exist on a spectrum of a group of individuals on one side that kind of hunt like a pack of wolves that's a model that works. And on the other side, you have a team that plays like a basketball team that can work too. And um, for me as, a, as an individual, you get a lot more out of me working as a team than in a kind of pack of wolves environment. And again, I don't mean to throw shade at that. It's just for me, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not well wired for that. Like the, I find internal competition quite stressful uh, and it, and it slows me down instead of motivates me to be better. And so inside of Redpoint, I think we've got a really good thing going. Um, you know, the recent returns are incredible. Uh, and you have a, a team that has, has managed through the, the process of a generational transition, I think, really thoughtfully. I know during your time at CRV, you only focused on consumer. And now at Redpoint, you're, if it's fair to say, more of a generalist. You invest in enterprise SaaS and also you, inv you invest in consumer technology. On the consumer technology part, how has that evolved um, in terms of what you look for versus, you know, five, six years ago when you were at uh, CRV? 
um, uh, then invest in investing in like class pass and what have you, how has it evolved now? How do you think about like consumer tech right now in terms of what's investable? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think, I think <laughs> the short answer is like, I, I think about it more strategically early on. Like I'm, I was just, I was just looking at deals, trying to like, you know, my blinders were on like this. I'm literally holding my hands by my face, you know, <laughs> saying like, I was just trying to, can I, can I, can I run the math and dream the dream with these people that this becomes a really big company? And that was what I did all day, every day. And I loved it. It was so great. And and now I've got, I'm part of a team that that is what our job is, but my job, that's only a piece of what I do every day. And I frankly kind of miss it. I wish I could do it a little bit more. Um, and so what do we look for in consumer or the people who are maybe a little bit younger than I am, who are what I was 10 years ago at CRV? My, my goals are, you know, find the big markets that, that ideally are not fully defined per our earlier conversation, um, find the big trends. They're probably like, we, we, you know, built the graphs, looked at the data. They're probably going to be marketplaces, networks, or subscriptions. Maybe those are kind of the only two models we look at these days. Um, we're not looking at CPG. We're not looking at transactional revenue. Um, well, marketplaces can be transactional revenue, but you want them to have like high frequency transactional revenue. So it doesn't really feel transactional. Um, and, and those are the areas we look at. I think there's been a wave of really successful consumer marketplace companies. We see far fewer of them now. Um, there was a wave of consumer subscription businesses, you know, things like Calm and Headspace and Peloton um, that are, you know, again, like there's been some, some good ones there. We still see some. Um, so what is it kind of what's next for consumer? We've seen a lot of web three consumer companies, uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of web three, everything over the last couple of years. <laughs> <Not to say. laughs> yeah. So that's maybe not a fair statement. Um, but that's very, very different than what consumer was looking like when I, when I was investing, uh, you know, back in CRV uh, years ago. I appreciate it. Well, Annie, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate it. And there you have it. It was an absolute pleasure having Annie on the show. I hope you all enjoyed listening. If you also love this content and learning more about consumer startups and VC, subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.substack.com, also available in show notes. Thanks for listening.